0: Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, welcome everybody to episode 33 of Push Dose EMS, your monthly educational offering from the Milwaukee County Office of Emergency Management. I'm your host, Jeff Matcha, Education Manager for the county. Uh, joining me are our host of Usual Suspects this month. So going down my list, I have EMS Division Director Dan Poger. Welcome, Dan. Hello, everybody. And then through our doc, so Dr. Weston. Then I have Dr. Nick Wachlinski. Welcome, Dr. Wachlinski.
1: Hey Jeff, thanks.
0: And Dr. Aaron McGlynn. Dr. McGlynn, welcome. Thanks, Jeff. I appreciate everybody taking the time out to join us today. And as per usual, before we dive into the topic of the day, we'll go through a couple updates. So system updates, we'll head over to Dan.
2: Thanks, Jeff. I've got two really brief ones, so I'll be really quick today. Uh, coming out at the later end of April here, uh, we're going to update all of the Zoll cardiac monitors to provide feedback for moving into phase two of the Zol Accuvent series trial, uh, which is currently being conducted as research through the Medical College of Wisconsin, so uh, what that will do is turn on the features for the screen so that all EMS providers can see the feedback. There will be specific settings that are installed that uh, we should be targeting, and so we'll look for more messaging coming out soon on that. And additionally, there will also be the deployment of the Thor site. Uh, clinical aids, which is a tool that's intended to be used in the setting of performing a needle decompression on a patient. It will help with identifying the proper location and providing a window that you can actually insert the device through, and it should assist with getting these placed in an appropriate position for the patient. So if it's easily accessible and readily available to be used during that procedure, as we all know, that's fairly time-sensitive. So if it can't be located, we'll look for ways to help uh, make that more available and accessible to you guys and your med kits, but also uh, if it is utilized, please ensure that it is documented appropriately in the image trend report so that we can track the metrics on the utilization of that tool. Thank you.
0: Excellent. Thank you, Dan. And for a brief message from medical direction, we'll send it over to Dr. Weston. Dr. Weston.
3: All right. Thank you, Jeff. And I'm really excited for this podcast, our annual guideline updates. Uh, Now, I won't get into too much detail about our guidelines. I'll leave that to the other folks here. Uh, But I do want to mention just what drives our guideline changes. And you'll see some discussion about this if you watch the longer uh, video. But uh, there's a few things that really drive our annual guideline updates. The principal driver is our continuous quality improvement process. Each time you bring to our attention or somebody else brings to our attention Uh, A question about quality, we look at that, and we look for trends in particular. We look for opportunities for improvement, and that is reflected in our updated guidelines. Now, another major driver, uh, the driver of our guideline updates is our EMS GAPS. This is our EMS Guideline and Policy Subcommittee. It's a subcommittee of our continuous quality improvement process. This is members from 10 different fire departments, the Office of Emergency Management, the Medical College of Wisconsin. They're doing 16 meetings, Over six months, this group is really grinding through all of our different guidelines, looking for any opportunities for clarity, for improvement, uh, for better patient care. How can we update and just do better by our patients? Uh, Of course, provider input, that's during our PIR discussions, uh, quality emails, our simulations. A lot of times during those sims, something comes up, we notice, ooh, that is weirded a little strangely, uh, and our surveys that we send out as well. Uh, Of course, medical director initiatives, reviewing the literature for best practices, Uh, what's new out there, what should we be including, what has good evidence behind it, Uh, and then of course adapting to Wisconsin EMS scope of practice, and there's a couple of examples of that this year as well. So those are the major drivers. Uh, I think we have a great set of guideline updates this year. Always provide us with feedback. Again, that's how these guidelines get built. Um, And with that, I'll hand it back to you, Jeff. Thank you.
0: Excellent. Thank you so much. Just to reiterate, uh, the work that goes into these guideline updates is immense, and we thank everybody that's been involved in the process. And to take that little deeper dive into some of the new updates, I'm going to go ahead and turn it over to Dr. McClinsky and McGlynn to talk us through some of the processes. Doctors.
4: All right, thanks, Jeff. So, as you have all heard, it is guideline update season, and we are adding magnesium. So we're going to take some time on this podcast to outline the nuts and bolts of magnesium. What is it? Why we added it? What it's used for, etc. So what is magnesium? If you think back to your chemistry class and the periodic table, magnesium is a mineral found in the human body, as well as the wide variety of plants and animals. There are about 25 milligrams of magnesium in the adult human body, and magnesium is super important in many biochemical reactions that are important for our day-to-day and minute-to-minute physiology.
1: Let's talk a little bit about why we added it. We're adding magnesium for several reasons. For one, it has been added to the Wisconsin scope of practice and is a required skill and medication that our paramedics have to have. It's also great medication that can be useful in a few important medical conditions, so we are glad to have it on hand now. So what do we use it for? Meg has been around for decades and has been used frequently in the hospital setting. Of course, it can be used as a replacement when some of the magnesium is low, but also has a few important specific conditions that we'll address here.
4: So first up on that list is bronchospasm, usually for asthma and COPD patients. Magnesium affects the smooth muscle in the respiratory tract, which leads to bronchodilation. The times you're considering using this is in moderate to severe bronchospasm patients. It should be given with dexamethasone following our guideline. Magnesium has a more immediate effect than dex. Dexamethasone takes a few hours to start working, but is still super important to the treatment process. Several studies have shown a decreased hospitalization rate for asthma patients who get IV magnesium during severe exacerbation. This medicine could also be the difference in someone progressing to respiratory arrest, so it's a great tool for us to have in these respiratory cases. Dosing for COPD and asthma or bronchospasm is 2 grams IV over 10 minutes diluted into 100 cc's with a 50 mg per kg dose to a max of two milligrams for pediatric patients, which is also diluted into 100 cc's and then excess drawn off. Pediatric patients should also get an IV fluid bolus when administering magnesium.
1: Secondly, magnesium is gonna be used for a condition called torsades de points, um, abbreviated TDP most commonly. So what is torsades? It's a polymorphic ventricular tachycardia caused by a prolonged QTC interval. A prolonged QTC means the heart takes longer to repolarize or recover from its previous contraction. If another electrical impulse fires prior to the heart completely repolarizing, then there's a risk for V-fib or ventricular tachycardia to develop. It's a similar concept if you cardiovert a patient without hitting that sync button. If the charge is delivered during the repolarization phase or during that QT interval, then there's a risk that the patient may develop VT or VFib. In torsades the QRS complex appears to be twisting around the axis, hence the name torsades de points or twisting of the points. In traditional monomorphic ventricular tachycardia, the QRS complex are always in the same orientation. Now, this concept is a little difficult to explain with just words, so I encourage you to look up this comparison as it will make more sense when you see it. We'll also have the comparison of VT and torsades in this month's newsletter, so be on the lookout for that. For torsades, the dosing of MAG is two grams IV push or the 50 milligrams per kilogram for a max of two grams in pediatric patients.
4: So when should you consider torsades? Be on the lookout for torsades in your cardiac arrest patients. It can rarely occur in patients with the pulse, but mostly we're looking at cardiac arrest here. A common cause of a prolonged QTC is medication. There are many medications that can result in a prolonged QT some common ones include things like azithromycin, some psychiatric medications like Haldol, and some antiemetics like Zofran and Reglan, as well as methadone. You might get some helpful information in your medication history to clue you into this potential cause.
1: So, how should we treat torsades and cardiac arrest? The treatment of these patients is just like any other cardiac arrest patient with a shockable rhythm. You want to do high quality CPR, early defibrillation, epinephrine, and amnio. Magnesium is helpful in these scenarios as it can help acutely shorten the QTC interval, thus helping prevent recurrent arrest. And this is the point we wanna stress. Magnesium does not help abate or stop the current this rhythm. Rather, it shortens the QTC interval to prevent recurrent arrest. Therefore, it should be given last when you're working through your shockable ACLS algorithm. That doesn't mean it isn't important. It just means that you're going to prioritize other interventions early in the resuscitation such as CPR, airway, IV access, Epi. Although you want to limit your Epi to about three doses, Amio, and then get ready for magnesium once you've gotten through all of that. So, if you reach the end of your ACLS algorithm, you've given your Amio, you've defib multiple times, and you have this persistent torsades rhythm, then Mag is appropriate to give while you're proceeding to load and go for our refractory VT or VT guideline. Magnesium should also be given in these torsized patients who you achieve ROSCON. Again, MAG will help shorten the QTC interval and prevent recurrent dysrhythmia and arrest.
4: All right, so finally, we will be talking about eclampsia. So what is eclampsia? This is one of those interesting medical conditions that's been around for ages, but we don't fully understand. It's thought to be potentially caused by some inflammatory markers released from the placenta during pregnancy. Generally, we think of eclampsia anytime after 20 weeks of pregnancy, and it can go all the way up to six weeks postpartum. This condition is actually sort of a continuum, so patients might present anywhere on that continuum, and it's important to know what you're watching for. The continuum starts on one end with preeclampsia, which, as implied by the name, is an early stage of this condition. This typically includes high blood pressure and some other findings like protein in the urine and swelling in the extremities. Women are screened and monitored for this throughout prenatal care, but if you have a patient who has not had routine prenatal care, you can see how easy it would be to miss these findings, since we know that elevated blood pressure and minor changes in things like the urine or minimal swelling are sometimes unnoticed by the patient.
1: Preeclampsia can lead to problems with anemia, low platelets, liver dysfunction, and severe bleeding, but can also lead to eclampsia, which presents with seizures. This is a severe and dangerous condition that has high maternal and infant mortality. So these patients need urgent treatment and ALS transport. In the pre-hospital setting, you would identify this as a pregnant patient with a seizure. There's usually high blood pressure associated, but you might not have that info right away if the patient is actively seizing. Start treating these patients like you would any seizure with Versed, but also get MAG ready. Even if the seizure stops before you give meds or after the Versed, you still wanna give the magnesium. This is what will prevent recurrent seizures and help with maternal outcome. So give your Versed, but get MAG ready to go right after. The dosing for eclampsia is a little bit different than bronchospasm and torsades in that it's four grams diluted into a 100cc bag, and we give that over 10 minutes.
4: Ultimately, definitive management of eclampsia is delivery of the baby in the hospital, usually by C-section. These patients have a high likelihood of seizing again and deteriorating further, so even if the seizure has stopped, they should be transported ALS to an OB-capable facility. So what about patients with existing seizure disorders who are pregnant? Great question. Since we can't know for sure what caused the seizure today, we should still be giving the magnesium. It's an overall safe medication, and we'll talk a little bit about side effects to expect in a minute. Another question that arises is what if the patient is no longer seizing when we get there? or we see the patient seizing, but they stop before we give any medications, including Versed. That's also a great question. If the patient is postictal or has signs of having had a seizure, like tongue biting, urine incontinence, or was witnessed by a bystander, you should still give that magnesium. You don't have to give Versed if they're not actively seizing, but like we said previously, the magnesium is going to prevent future seizures if eclampsia was the cause.
1: All right, Aaron. now that we're talking about odd seizures. Let's do a quick bonus uh, round here to kind of just go over some other seizures that we should worry about. So let's start with this. So you have a 6 year old patient with a first time seizure. What kind of things are you thinking about?
4: Mm, so we'd want to think about things like CNS infections, like meningitis or encephalitis, and then things like brain bleeds or strokes or potentially trauma. Uh, also thinking about hypoglycemia if our patient was diabetic, and then maybe ingestion or polypharmacy in kind of the older age group. Question for you, Nick, what about patients with alcohol use?
1: Oh, that's a great question. And we, unfortunately, we see this somewhat frequently. So you want to think about things like alcohol withdrawal, right? Like the, this is a dangerous process that we want to treat with benzos if needed. Um, also, if it's the patient is intoxicated, happened to fall down and to get some intracranial injuries such as bleeding, that can also present a, a seizure. But what about that patient who had a seizure but doesn't appear to have a postictal period? What are we thinking about then?
4: Ooh, that's a good one. So syncopal episodes actually often manifest like a seizure. So people can have these brief episodes with tonic-clonic type movements, usually due to decreased cerebral perfusion. So they're not getting enough blood to their brain because something was going on with their heart. Usually these people don't have a post period. So that should definitely raise your suspicion and kind of clue you into more of a syncope episode. And if they have a post state, then maybe thinking more of a seizure. And lastly, what about kind of infectious symptoms like being febrile or having other stuff going on with the seizure.
1: Yeah, it's another good thing to be on the lookout for because you want to be worried about things like meningitis, encephalitis, kind of as you mentioned a little earlier, and with that, you know, that six-year-old first-time seizure. Um, also, kiddos can have febrile seizures at, at a younger age. These tend to be a little more benign, but still something you want to be on the lookout for um, and evaluate critically. All right. So I think that ends our bonus round again. Just some other things to think about when you're approaching a seizure patient as not all seizures are benign. Okay. So back to our magnesium topic. So just to kind of review dosing here, um, just because we talked about a lot of different things here. So the standard dosing for magnesium is two grams with bronchospasm and torsades dip points, and then four grams in eclampsia. A helpful memory tool I heard once was this one gram per lung mnemonic, which you know, if you think about, you have two lungs to worry about with bronchospasm and torsades is you just have the one patient, but then in eclampsia, you have four lungs because you have mom and baby. So that's why the dosing in eclampsia is four grams. But again, the general gist, you have two grams in bronchospasm and torsades and then four grams in eclampsia. The biggest difference you want to pay attention to is the rate at which you give it. In torsades, we're going to be pushing that magnesium over two minutes, while in bronchospasm and eclampsia, we're going to be giving it over 10 minutes. In pediatric patients, the dosing is 50 milligrams per kilogram, and you want to make sure you're drawing off the excess magnesium before you hang that drip to prevent inadvertent overdose of the magnesium. Also notice that you dilute magnesium for treatment for eclampsia and bronchospasm, but not in torsades. So you're just going to be pushing the magnesium straight with torsades, but diluting it from eclampsia and bronchospasm. And finally, all pediatric patients should have IV fluid bolus going when they're getting the magnesium. This will almost universally be given in pediatric patients with bronchospasm, but just something you want to make sure you're keeping in mind.
4: All right. So what side effects should we be monitoring for? The main one is hypotension. The biggest concern with this is for kids, which is why we talk about giving that IV fluid bolus if we're giving magnesium to a pediatric patient. Again, remember to draw off that excess dose prior to giving a PED dose to avoid overdosing on magnesium. The other side effect to monitor for is respiratory depression. This is very unlikely to happen at the levels that we're dosing magnesium. If you were to notice respiratory depression in a patient you've been giving magnesium to, you're going to support their respiratory status, whether that's with oxygen or bag valve mask ventilations. Sometimes these patients need intervention once you get to the hospital. That can include things like IV fluids and sometimes administering other medications like calcium. But for the most part, this is unlikely to occur at our dosing. And if you're ever concerned something is going wrong, you can always contact online medical control to discuss.
1: All right. And I think that'll do it this month for our podcast. A little bit shorter this month, um, but next month we'll be about our trauma field triage criteria. And we'll need a little more time for that. So um, we wanted to give you a little more time back this month. You'll see these changes outlined in our bronchospasm cardiac arrest guideline and seizure guideline um, when it comes to adding uh, magnesium. We know these changes can be cumbersome, but the addition of magnesium allows us to better care for our critically ill patients. Please reach out early and often with any questions or concerns as we roll this all out. Stay tuned next month as we dive into our changes for trauma field triage criteria. As always, thank you all for all your hard work and dedication to your patients and our system. Be well and stay safe, and we'll see you next month.
0: Docs, thank you so much. Do always appreciate your time and taking a look at a deep dive into new medication hit the system. Uh, I think it'll be beneficial for our patients out there and a little bit of time to get used to it, but I think we'll be in good shape here in short order. So thank you everybody for joining us today. Uh, Those here presenting on the podcast and those listening out there in podcast land, we will talk to you next month. Stay safe.